Please open it to John chapter 18. Uh, We'll be looking at verses 15 through 27 in just a moment. And as you're turning there, I I always like to read through the book of Revelation. I read through it um, often. It's something that always kind of sparks in my mind. It's a very vivid book. Um, Perhaps it's because... uh, I'm starting to change my views on it with Michigan losing to Indiana so badly yesterday. I think that that is a sign of the apocalypse. And so uh, there's probably the end coming soon. You need to be prepared for this, people. Um, But uh, it it has startling, vivid images in it. And some of the verses just are are capable of kind of taking you uh, by surprise. And uh, one of the passages that I thought of even this morning was in Revelation 21, verses 7 through 8. And this is what that blessed end chapter, not quite the end, but the second to last chapter in Revelation says, verses seven through eight say, the one who conquers will have this heritage and I will be his God and he will be my son. Which is interesting enough that normal language there is usually I will be their God and they will be my people, but this is now changed to he will be my son. We don't even have time to talk about that interesting bit. But then verse 8 goes on. But as for the faithless, the detestable, for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, as vivid as that is, there's nothing in that passage for those who have actually read through the Bible and know much about the Bible that stands out as particularly odd. The Bible is continually calling for murderers and theft and and those who practice sexual immorality and idolatry, that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. The interesting bit is the word that I left out, and it's actually the first word in that list in Revelation 21.8. What John actually says there is not, but as for the faithless alone, but he says, but as for the cowardly. It's interesting that the cowardly are cast out of the kingdom. So in John's mind, the same writer of our gospel as the one who wrote the book of Revelation, to be a Christian is to not be a coward. You cannot be a coward and be a Christian at the same time. These two things seem to not mix. They're like oil and, and water. You can't, you can't have both of them, just like you can't be faithless and be a Christian at the same time. What does it mean then for us to be courageous? What does it mean for us to not be cowards? What does such courage look like? We can go through scripture and find tremendous examples of what courage looks like. Probably first and foremost in your mind if you're thinking of examples of courage in scripture might be Joshua. After all, the beginning of that book is talking to Joshua and God is is commending him and commanding him to be courageous. Verses 6, 7, and 9 of the first chapter. As Joshua is going to lead God's people into the promised land, this sort of riffraff of an army that he's got, which is nothing but a bunch of farmers who basically have worked in in the wilderness for 40 years. Now they're something of an army and, and that is who Joshua has to lead into the promised land. So God tells him, be strong and courageous for you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. And then in verse nine, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened 
and do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Joshua, you, you don't have a choice, brother. Be strong, be courageous. God will fight for you. Maybe you're thinking of, of David and Goliath. Five smooth stones is all he had. And it only took one of them. This massive man that David brought down and then cut his head off. Maybe you think of Esther, who goes before a king, willing to lay down her life simply to ask a question. Perhaps we can think in more recent history, even continuing, as I talked about Luther last week, after putting the 95 Theses on the Wittenberg door, which was in Latin, which really was just an academic exercise, somebody grabs those, translates them into German, and scatters them all around Germany. And soon, Luther, writing other works in the meantime, finds himself at something we call the Diet of Worms, which is neither a diet like you think it is, neither does it have to do anything with worms, which when I learned that, I was very disappointed. I thought it had something to do with him being force-fed worms until he recanted. Um, it's probably good that I wasn't around back then. Uh, but uh, basically, Luther w- goes into a trial and in a very small room is confronted by people and almost every single one of the men who are in that room have the ability and the authorization according to the world and according to the church, to take him outside at any point in time, tie him to a stake and burn him. But Luther doesn't recant. He says, I I can't in good conscience. We have all these wonderful pictures of courageous behavior. But my guess is that we are much closer to pictures of cowardly behavior. And so it helps for us to have this picture given to us in John 18 of what a coward looks like. Because Peter is certainly cowardly here. Let us read John 18, 15 through 27 and see what it means for the courageous and for the coward. Beginning in verse 15, Simon Peter followed Jesus and so did another disciple Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest, but Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, you you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. Now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold, And they were standing and warming themselves. Peter was also with them, standing and warming himself. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. Jesus answered him, I've spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in the synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I've said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. And when he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Now, Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, 
Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once, a rooster crowed. This is a particularly interesting passage, if for nothing else, than the way in which John portrays the events. He cuts this denial of Peter, this threefold denial of Peter in half, and throws into the middle of it this questioning of Jesus. Being split into two parts draws attention to the two parts, and certainly what John means to do is contrast the actions and the attitude and the words of Peter with what Jesus himself is doing. As we go through the text, which we will do before we come to sort of our conclusions and our application, in the first part of Peter, we find out that Peter is not on his own. There was another disciple with him. We have every reason to believe that this other disciple is John. John talks about himself sort of abstractly throughout the entire book. Sometimes he refers to himself as the beloved disciple. Here, we would have every right to think that this other disciple is no less than John. This particular incident, the way it's related to us and some of the details here are found only in John. They're not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. We would think probably that they're not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke because either they didn't want to include them, which they may well not have desired that, but also because they didn't have access to the eyewitness testimony that John clearly has access to. And so John relates this passage from his own vantage point. He knows how Peter got in. He knows where he denied the Lord. This John was clearly known to the high priest and likely well known to him. It's not just that John knew of him and he let him in. It appears as though John's pretty close because John can enter directly into the man's courtyard. This courtyard was probably backed up to by a couple of houses, and Annas and Caiaphas probably shared the same courtyard together. So to get in there with the trial going on was actually kind of a big deal. And he's well enough known to be able to go out and talk to the girl who's guarding the door and say, no, Peter is with me, let him come in. So John had made it a way in, and he found out that Peter wasn't allowed, and he goes back, and he allows Peter to come in. Now, when the girl asks him, we have no idea if John is close to Peter when he hears this denial. I would venture to guess that John had talked to the girl, invited Peter in, and left so that John didn't actually overhear any of this. It's hard for me to believe that Peter would have done this in the presence of John. Nevertheless, perhaps he did. It's just kind of my guess. But John being there does make his denial all the more difficult to understand. Notice the way the servant girl puts it. You also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? That is, you know that John is a disciple. She knows that John's a disciple. John comes and talks to her, and it's clear that Peter is linked with John. And so the connection in her mind is, if you're linked with John, John's a disciple of this guy who's on trial. Are you also a disciple of this man on trial? Peter's not on his own here. He's not solitary in the world. He can easily just point at John and say, yeah, I'm with John, and John and I are both disciples of Jesus. But Peter, for whatever reason, is afraid to answer this little girl honestly whether it's because he was afraid that the trial would come to him just as it has come to Jesus. I don't know. It's difficult to tell what's going through Peter's mind. We don't have access to it. But it's obvious that something put him off. Something made him quite afraid, even of this little girl, and so he denies it. It's interesting that the denial that Peter utters 
is in a sense the exact opposite of the confession that Jesus makes back in the garden. When they come to arrest Jesus, Jesus asks them whom they're looking for. And they say, well, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And we talked about Jesus responding to them with two words in Greek, ego emi, I am he. Peter here responds to the question with two small words, ou emi, I am not. Jesus confesses truly. Peter uses almost the exact same words and confesses falsely. He's not just denying the Lord, he's denying even himself. Peter then goes before a charcoal fire. Interestingly, John gives us this little detail. This little detail probably serves a couple of purposes. One is to make the picture more vivid, not because John cares about making very vivid descriptions of things. If you've read through the Gospel of John, you realize John wastes almost no time describing scenery. So the fact that he describes this charcoal fire is important. He does it primarily for what's going to happen in the future. So if you, you kind of keep logs of these things in your head, remember that there's a charcoal fire here. And when we come back to the idea of a charcoal fire in a couple of chapters, this should spark your memory. But it's also to make it very clear that these men were standing around warming themselves by the fire and Peter was with them. Now again, John could have done this in any of a number of ways. He could have just said there were men there that confronted Peter, that asked Peter about whether he was one of Jesus' disciples or not. But John throws in the interesting bit three different times. These men were standing around and warming themselves. He uses the exact same language to describe Peter. Peter also was with them. Notice the also there. No longer with John, no longer also like John, but now also like them, standing and warming himself. By the time we come back, John will be again describing Peter as standing and warming himself. But before we get back to there, we switch to the trial of Jesus. And there are a couple of questions that come up in this that we will address just briefly. First is this idea of who is the high priest. If you're reading through here very carefully, it seems like Annas is the high priest, and it also seems like Caiaphas is the high priest, but there can only be one high priest. This is likely because the Jews had, had sort of the Romans sticking their nose into their business as much and as often as they possibly could. And Annas, once appointed, was high priest for life. But because the Romans liked to have control over things, at some point in time they came in and said, hey, listen, we're going to appoint the high priest for the year. To appease the Jews, they allowed it to be chosen primarily from Annas' family. So while Annas is kind of the real and true high priest, Caiaphas is more like the legal high priest according to Roman law. And so both are considered high priests, and this is why it goes back and forth. The courtyard is clearly their private courtyard where this is happening at night. Which brings us to the second problem of what in the world is going on here. If you look at Jewish law sometime later, it's clear that two things happen in this particular trial that are illegal in the highest, which some scholars have used to say, well, obviously, this is not how it would have happened. First, all of this is happening still at night. That was strictly forbidden in Jewish law. And I, by Jewish law, I do not mean the Old Testament. I mean the laws that the Jews followed for how to do these court proceedings. These were made sometime later. We don't know when. It could have been in place when Jesus was being tried. It could have come into being some centuries later. We're not exactly sure. 
But one was that these things were happening at night, which was strictly forbidden, and two, the defendant was being questioned immediately, which also was not allowed. It's very easy to see and understand why it would be that even if these things were in place, they would be kind of sidestepped. It's clear that these leaders of the Jewish nation think that Jesus is a real existential threat to the nation. This is why Caiaphas said it's better for one man to die for the whole nation than to have the whole nation taken away. It's real in their mind that Jesus could be the guy who sets a spark to Roman anger and come and crush all of them. When nations feel like this, they quite often sidestep even their own laws in order to get things done in an expedient manner. Secondly, as we go through here, you're going to find the whole thing is nothing but a mock trial, which is something that Jesus is going to draw attention to. Annas asks him very quickly, disciples and teaching, that's what I want to know about. Jesus has no interest at all in talking about his disciples, likely because, again, he wants to keep his disciples out of it. It's not about my disciples, it's about me. He is safeguarding his disciples. But when it comes to his teaching, he's very clear. Why are you asking me? Why are you asking me? I've taught in the temple. You didn't approach me there. I taught in the synagogues. You guys didn't approach me there. You, you can easily find out the things that I've taught. I'm not teaching people something different on the side. Clearly, he taught his disciples on the side in secret, if you would, but that was substantially no different than the things that he was talking about in public. The Jewish leadership, in believing that they have this real an existential threat is no longer trying to ascertain the truth. They didn't call Jesus in to question him to find out if what Jesus was saying was actually bad or good or wrong or helpful. They weren't trying to figure out what is good and right and true. What they were trying to do is find out how we're going to prosecute him. And Jesus rightly says, you can go and ask anyone. As a matter of fact, the officers who were standing just outside had likely heard him in the temple before. If you go back to chapter 7, the whole reason why Jesus wasn't arrested earlier was because he was teaching in such a way that the officer said, we can't arrest him because no one has ever taught like that before. In John chapter 7, 44 and 48, 44 through 48, some of them, that is the leadership, wanted to arrest him, but no one could lay hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and the Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? How many of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Not only is it evident and obvious that Annas knows exactly the things that Jesus has been saying, but he could find out from any Jew who walked down the street and he could certainly find out from the very officers and the servants in his house. He's not trying to find the truth. It's not a trial. Justice isn't being sought. It's a clown show. Annas is not trying to determine what is going on. He's trying to find a way to justify an action that he has already set in motion. While we will get to application here in a bit, friends, that cannot be you. 
so many people are so set on the way that they think in life that they're just scared to try and figure out what is true and what is not. And when they actually do look things up, when they actually do try to find facts, they're really only interested in facts that already back up a decision that they have already made or a conclusion that they have already come to. Don't let that be you. Be people of the truth. Listen to people who you disagree with and find truth in what they say where it can be found. Jesus is clearly pointing to the fact that this is nothing but a mockery and a sham, which is why, frankly, the officer slaps him. Because while Jesus is being subtle, it's clear that the officer understands exactly what's going wrong. He knows that he is looking at Annas and saying, listen, this is a joke. Why are you asking me? You didn't have to arrest me to ask me these questions. I was in the temple yesterday. You could have come and talked to me. You could have talked to my disciples at any point in time. You didn't have to send a band to arrest me. You could have just walked over to the garden and found me and talked to me. You could have taken yourself with Judas and come on over. But you didn't do any of that. Jesus is pointing out to them that this is an absolute mockery of justice and that is why the officer slaps him because the officer understands what he's saying. He is actually making an affront to Annas. And Jesus' response is very clear. Tell me where I'm wrong. It's interesting that he slaps Jesus, I think because Jesus is clearly making this out to be a mockery only to enhance the mockery of the trial. No one's there for truth. They're only there for condemning. And then all of a sudden, after Anna sends him bound back to Caiaphas, we snap back to Peter. And Peter is therefore again standing and warming himself. And they ask him, are you also one of his disciples, aren't you? He denies it and says, I am not. Interestingly, the third person who asks him, one of the servants who was there, who knew Malchus, who had his ear cut off by Peter in the unfortunate incident of last week, asked Peter, didn't I see you in the garden? Don't, don't I know you? Weren't you in the garden with him? And interestingly, although he denies him a third time, this time John doesn't have him saying it. So the amount of times that John has Jesus saying, I am, is the exact same amount of times Jesus has Peter saying, I am not. Peter's betrayal, his cowardly act complete, the rooster crows, no doubt reminding him that Christ knew all along what was going to happen, that Jesus had foretold him, you will deny me three times. You think you're brave, Peter, but you're not. The trial that Peter was undergoing, I think, is probably being ratcheted up as he goes along. Likely, his fear of this little girl is not because she's a little girl, but it's because he's concerned that she is going to tell somebody. She clearly has an in. She is the one who works at that gate, going back to the high priest's uh, courtyard. So she knows where to go if she wants to tell somebody. This is also a disciple of Jesus. So he's worried about being sort of tattled on by her. The officers, though, have the right to arrest him, and they can arrest him. Perhaps he is therefore more concerned about this third guy 
because maybe this guy, if he recognized him, knew he was out for retribution, because after all, Peter did cut off his cousin's ear. Regardless, Peter denies and he denies and he denies. It's easy to look at this story and simply see Peter's failure and say, friends, you need to do better and move on. There is a little bit more to kind of pull from this story, I think, and something else that we can garner for our own lives and help us to be more courageous in how we live. First, I want to tell you that courage is displayed in faithfulness. Courage is displayed in faithfulness to Christ. It's not in bravado, nor is it in power. The way that we typically conceive of bravado and power. Typically, when we think of courage, we think of war movies. We think of of people marching into battle and doing absolute courageous things that, that deal with life and death. And that's good and true and right as far as it goes. But courage is more about doing what is right when it's inconvenient. It's not about doing what's right when it's easy, but it's about doing what is right when it's hard. We might ask fairly why it was that Peter was so tempted, so excited to take out his sword and to to use it on the ear, if he intended that, of the servant when all of those soldiers were around him. Doesn't that prove that he is filled with courage? He's surrounded by men who are highly trained soldiers. He is vastly outnumbered, and he's basically saying, bring it on. My guess is that he's not terribly courageous there. If he thought about it, it might have been more along the lines of it's easier to die in an instant than it is to watch your death coming on a cross. Courage is not just found in life and death situations. We oftentimes wonder, we see, we hear stories of martyrs, see pictures of Christians lined up with sacks over their heads waiting to be beheaded by Muslim terrorists. And you think, and I think, how would I do in that situation? How how would my faith handle that? Would, Would I cowered out at the last minute Christian history is littered with martyrs who went fervently to their deaths, never denying for a second what was coming to them. Never backing out, never letting go. It is also just as littered with people who were faithful Christians up to that moment who backed out and denied. And it's right for us to ask those questions. It's right for us to ask when the executioner comes for me, would I hold on to my faith? Would I say the right things and believe the right things and do the right things? But to be honest, those questions are questions for us. They're academic and theoretical. And I would would guess that for the vast majority of us, if not, frankly, for every single person in this room, they are nothing more than that. Those questions will never become reality. You're never going to have your life threatened. Most of us will not even face jail time for preaching the gospel. And by most of us, I mean, frankly, all of you will not face jail time for preaching the gospel. So you can be curious about those kind of questions, but that's, that's not ever something you're, you're likely to face. Christ has that path laid out for many people in the world. 
Around the world today, there are many Christians who will face death for what they believe. There are many Christian pastors who will face jail time for what they preach. It is unlikely that that is the path that Jesus is applying to any of us in this room. But your courage is not to be found before the riffraff of soldiers. Your courage has to be found before the girl at the gate. before your coworkers, before your family members, before your neighbors, so that you walk faithfully in the Lord, are not, are not turned away and scared to talk about Jesus and the good that he has done for you in your life to people who are perfect strangers, that you are willing to go out on a limb to talk to people, to spread the gospel, to be able to share with them the good news that Jesus Christ has died and has risen again. That is where your courage is found. It is faithfulness to what Jesus has called you to do. When, and especially when, it's inconvenient. I think that this has a special note for men in here. It is less important, friends, that you be prepared to wield sort of a worldly sword to fight for Jesus physically, or even for your family physically, or to do whatever masculine thing you think of when you think of being a man before Christ and being courageous for Christ. Simply do what he's called you to do, which is not wield the sword of the world, but wield the sword of his word. Christian men in America, frankly, on the whole, not every single one of them, but a good portion of them, seem very, very concerned over like Second Amendment rights. They're so concerned that the government's going to come and take away their guns. And some of the argument is, if they take away my guns, how am I going to defend my family? Somebody comes in that door, I need to be courageous enough to point that gun and to take his life before he takes the life of my family. Okay. How many of those same Christian men are wielding the sword of the word to protect their family? How many of those men who claim that they want to protect their family and they can't have those rights taken away from them, refuse to use the right that God has given them and the command that God has given them to lead their family in devotions, to read scripture with their kids, to disciple them in the admonition of the Lord. I would venture a large number of men do not do that. But they're awfully concerned about their guns. Courage is found in faithfulness to Christ. Second, courage is found in identity. Courage is found in identity. I don't think it's for nothing that Peter here is put in the lot and he is shown to be in like kind with the soldiers and the officers, the servants of the the high priest, the very people who are turning against Jesus and have arrested him and have led him to the man who will indeed lead him to another man who will indeed crucify him. Peter clearly is identifying with them. He is walking up to them. He is doing what they are doing. They are warming themselves. He is warming himself. He's not by John. He's not by the other disciples. What we find is that he is by the people of the world doing exactly what the people of the world do. And frankly, if anything, what Peter is doing according to John, is acting like an antichrist. 
He not only is denying Jesus, but he's denying Jesus using almost the very words that Jesus used that he heard and aligning himself with the world. Peter wanted to fit in. He didn't want to be an outsider. He didn't want to suffer the consequences of being with Jesus. He stood by those men proclaiming, I am just like you. I see, we're all just here warming ourselves by the fire. We're all just here trying to, trying to make it through this crazy night. Crazy things happening, aren't they, Fred? Right? Let's get warm. I'm just like you guys. The more you find yourself accepted by others on some basis, whether that's political affiliation, whether that's the team or the club that you like to be part of, the more that you find yourself aligned with them, the more you try to find a home in this world based on some similarities and and find a home with other people based on some similarities outside of Christ, when Christ is not the center of your life and the center of who you are, friend, you start walking on very dangerous paths. Because when your life is defined by these other similarities, by these other people who aren't Christians, the more prone you will be to making that group and those attitudes, those thoughts, those doctrines, those hopes, your identity. And then the more difficult it will become when that group does wrong to stand against them for Jesus. It becomes very difficult little secret in life. It's really easy to stand up to your enemies. It's really easy to look at one who hates you and tell them that they're wrong. It's really hard. Really hard to stand up to friends. And the more the people of the world are your friends, the more they are the ones, not, not that you're friendly with, don't be a jerk, I'm not giving you license for that. Don't quote me here and be like, you told me. No, I didn't. Be friendly, but that can't be your home. It can't be your home. It can't be your identity. And continually, honestly, I'm getting tired of talking about it, but I, we just can't avoid it. Politics is rotten. And the more you align yourself with political parties, and the more you align yourself with the things that those political parties push, the more dangerously close you get to identifying yourself with them. And it will become very hard, very hard to critique them when they go crosswise with Jesus. It's hard to deny the very thing that you think you are. If you define yourself as a Republican, it will become very hard to critique Republicans when they do things that Jesus thinks is wrong. And I'm not going to even talk about the Democrats. Not that I don't think that they're included in that, but let's face it. It's, it's not like a majority of Democrats in this room. I'm not telling you that it's wrong. I am telling you that it can be dangerous. And I'm telling you, you've got to be very, very vigilant. Wake up every morning and remind yourself that you are Christ's. That he is the center of your being and your worth that the people of this church, especially for the members of this church, are the people that you care about, that you have covenanted with, whose opinions matter to you much more than your co-workers, much more than even your family. Jesus says, if you do not deny your family and love me, 
right? At times, friends, we can become very, very close, very, very close to the world and lose our identity truly being found in Christ. And it makes it so much easier to deny Christ when we ought to stand up for him. Courage is found in identity. And lastly, courage is given in Christ. Peter's failure is not just a failure of faith. It's not just a failure of confession, which it clearly is both of those things. But there's something very unique about this for Peter. We want to think of Jesus as our friend. And indeed, if you know him, and you've trusted in him, and he works in you, he is your friend, he is with you, you are with him, you are identified with him, you are his friend. But Peter would have known that in a very particular way. Jesus was with him for some three years. He helped Peter, he walked with Peter, they shared meals together, they shared jokes together, they shared time together. That was his friend. And Peter is now distancing himself from him, not just denying his Lord and Savior, not just denying the very one who has been called the Messiah by Peter himself, but much more intimately than that, denying a friend. Why is this failure highlighted for us in every single gospel? As different as John's gospel is than all of the other gospels, it's highlighted everywhere. Poor Peter. We can blow this off. We can just say, ah, Peter with that foot-shaped mouth continually doing things that are wrong, you know? Like, this is just what he does. This is just what Peter did. But that's never the point. The point isn't it's just what Peter does or it's just what Peter did. It's what Peter did. This is, this is not some dude who just straggled in off the streets This is the man who was clearly the head of the apostles. He was made a pillar in the church. Jesus looked at him and said, to you, Peter, I have given the keys of the kingdom. This is not just some dude. It is Peter. The point is never that we look down on Peter for this. So if you read this and all you see is the failure of Peter and you don't see your own likely failures, you are reading it wrong. Because if Peter did it, friend, you will do it. Or at least it's very likely that you can do it. You ought to read this as a warning. Not to say, oh, I'm better than Peter. Peter just always spoke when he shouldn't have spoken and Peter thought things he shouldn't have thought and I'm better than that. No, Peter did it, friend. And if Peter failed in this way, there's every reason in the world to think that you could as well. You will sin. You will deny Christ, whether in word or in deed. You will fail him. You will walk in hypocrisy. You will refuse to speak to people that you ought to speak. You will refuse to say the things that you ought to say. You will refuse to give Jesus the due that he ought to be given but there is yet hope for each and every one of us. Jesus is faithful for you, just as he was faithful for Peter. The same Peter who failed so poorly here. Indeed, most of the things that I talked about are yet future. He will indeed be an apostle 
in the church of Jesus Christ. He indeed will be a pillar of that church. He indeed will lead and guide that church through some very, very difficult times. And he will do it because Jesus was faithful even when Peter was not. Jesus is faithful for you. He is courageous for you. In 2 Timothy 2, we read this. The saying is trustworthy. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he can't deny himself. Jesus cannot be faithless, because to be faithless is to deny himself. It is faithless to his word. He can't do that. Faithless to those that have been called to him. He has said in John, I can't do that. I will not lose the ones that God has given to me and my Father has given to me. His faithfulness is enough to cover Peter's failure, and friend, it's enough to forgive yours. Jesus is going to die for Peter. And he already knew of Peter's sin. He already knew of Peter's failure, and he was going to die for him anyway. He separated out Peter so that Peter would not suffer the same fate. Had Peter understood that, he wouldn't have denied him. He would have gone around prancing on the rooftops, saying, I'm the Lord's. John will, at the end of his gospel, have Jesus look at Peter and say, you know, you tried to evade it once, but there's coming a day when people will come and get you and they will take you to a death that you don't want. Indeed, that is Peter's lot. Peter will not run from it forever. Jesus was faithful for him. He was and is the Joshua who takes over the promised land, who defeats all of the enemies of God's people. He is the Esther who will go not before a great earthly king, but intercede for his people before God himself. He is the greater David who took on a Goliath bigger than the Goliath that David took on and defeated him. Better than David, David cheated. He used a stone from a distance. It wasn't even like hand-to-hand combat, man. Death took a hold of Jesus, but it couldn't hang on to him. Peter himself learns from this. In 1 Peter 2, Peter writes, For to this, that is suffering, you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And notice in there, there is both the example for how we are to live and the benefits that Jesus' death accrues for us. Christ was courageous and bought our freedom from sin and from the penalty of death. That for those who entrust themselves to the work of Jesus Christ, your sin is forgiven, new life is given to you. You are able to be rescued from all of the evil that was in you and delivered into a kingdom that is never ending forever and ever because of what Jesus has done. But at the same time, he is therefore an example for how you are to live. Entrust yourself to the one who judges justly. Do not fear man but only, only live in the light of Jesus Christ. 
And after all, this is precisely what that passage in Romans 21, or Revelation 21.7 meant when it said, I will be their God and they will be, or he will be my son. You are all found in Christ. That is why there is one son. There is one progeny for God. There is one seed forever and ever, amen. It was always promised in Christ and as we are found in Christ, God looks on us with all of the love and the longing and the desire that he has for his own son. Christ was faithful for us and has brought us into his kingdom. So let us live in it. We are his by faith. By faith we are identified with him. By faith we as the church become his fullness and we will dwell in his blessed presence forever. So, friends, take the commands from Joshua and apply them to yourself. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened, and do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Let us pray. Father, give us courage before the world to uphold the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has saved us from wrath and every danger. He alone has the words of life. He alone has our redemption in his hands, and we have nowhere else to turn. Give us, therefore, courage to stand against the pull of the world and to be found, finally, faithful before him. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.